Hello and welcome to Twin Takes, where we give you our takes on things we find interesting. I'm Christian. And I'm Eric. I want to welcome you to episode four. Our first episode, we were uploading a video on YouTube along with the audio version as a podcast. We're doing this for several reasons. One, when we listen to podcasts, we personally like the video because you can see the expression and it feels a little more natural. Um, but also, we're going to be showing clips of videos, uh, articles, documents, reports, and stuff to kind of go along when we reference things that we want to show you that are legit sources and whatnot. Um, and it's a little more fun on video. But we're also adding a beginning section of each episode where we're going to kind of talk about current news events and have a pretty much a conversation between Eric and I, um, just talking about what's been going on in the past week or so, things we've been following. So for this episode, I'm going to start a development I certainly find interesting. Um, Andrew Yang officially announced that he's running for mayor of New York City. There's about a dozen or so candidates right now. Um, but if you know us, you know we liked Andrew Yang's presidential run, um, very much so. Uh, he's pretty much doing a similar platform as his presidential run. He wants to pilot a universal basic income about of about two to $5,000 a year for about 500,000 New York New Yorkers um, that are below around the poverty line to kind of demonstrate the ability of a policy like this. Um, he wants to revamp public transportation, get a full electric bus system. He wants to change certain economic measurements, which is something he talked about in the presidential campaign to, the argument is you have be better metrics on the things and the outcomes you want, you'd be able to like enact policies more along the lines of that. Um, but one of the biggest things is he acknowledges that A, New York has a bunch of problems. It's not just one main problem that they're dealing with. Um, and that the effects of COVID are gonna be long lasting and they're gonna need some help rebuilding back New York after COVID crisis. Um, but Eric, do you have anything to say about that? Yeah, uh, one thing I'm looking forward to is based on how he portrayed himself in the presidential campaign, you know, he had a good um, media presence, not like mainstream media, but in terms of social media, like he had a, he had a good following. And in terms of policy, he came out with dozens and I think over a hundred actually mm -hmm. of policies, like very specifically laid out all the details. So for his campaign for mayor of New York, I would like to see it. I, I assume he will do the same, a similar thing where he's going to have a bunch of different policies completely laid out. And I think that will really help him um, get to the, get to the front of the race. Yeah. And we were talking before we started recording that both of us have a slight concern that he's becoming a little too um, establishment like I'd like to think that because of how he was in the his presidential campaign, I think he, demonstrated that he wasn't going to just go along with the status quo. So I'd like to think that he's just under the impression that he needs to kind of cozy up with the system to get his foot further in the door. Um, but I guess we'll have to wait and see how this cycle goes. Yeah. Uh, is that all on that? Yeah. If you want to move on to your thing, your first one. Yeah. So something that was published in, I have the article on my phone, the New York Post on January 15th was that 23 people in Norway who received the Pfizer vaccine actually died. And 
not to alarm people, but 13 of those deaths, all nursing home patients, were apparently related to the side effects of the shots, health officials say. So to clarify, this does not mean that like out of normal people who got it, some people just died because of the vaccine, like 100% because of the vaccine. Basically what happened was some of these people who received the vaccine were older, they were frail, they had like pre-existing conditions and that type of thing. They just weren't in, in generally good health. So the minor side effects of the vaccine, like fever and and other illness type um, symptoms, that in combination with their age, their frailty, any other pre-existing conditions, that is what essentially led to their death. So it wasn't just they got the vaccine and died. Um, just to clarify, um, to avoid hysteria, but I think it is still something that should be that should be known by people. Um, just because I think going into a situation of like wanting to vaccinate and the entire population essentially, um, being clear about by and large, this is, it's effective. It is safer to get the vaccine than not. Um, but for transparency's sake, this is something that happened. This is something that you, you should know. Um, just because, I mean, honestly, in my, in my position, hearing this and like understanding the story, what happened makes me feel better about potentially taking the vaccine because I know just more details about it, you know? Yeah. And there's, so like since the beginning of the whole vaccine development, there's been dozens and dozens across the world that have been in development. Um, and I'm actually working on getting a guest on this podcast who is more familiar with the biomedical side of things and the vaccines and whatnot. But there's been some, like you mentioned what happened in Norway, but there was some cases where there was uh, a high prevalence of Bell's palsy, which is basically half your face kind of gets paralyzed and droops. It didn't last forever, but with a certain amount of patients, they found that with one of the vaccines, there's been some strange cytokine storm reactions, which is basically your immune system having a heightened response which is worse if you're younger. But it, again, it's not like a large number of people. But like you were saying, if I'm told something is 100% safe, I'm probably going to be a little suspicious because nothing is 100% safe, nothing is 100% anything. So when you have like the full information, the full story, it's kind of like, okay, they're being clear about certain things that are happening, certain things that aren't happening. And this most of this stuff is coming from like the CDC, the NIH, or equivalent agencies on other countries. Um, yeah, and I think one last thing on that, um, similar to what you said, if, if you're told something is 100% safe and then you hear of something that is counter to that, but even if it's not serious, like I said, like these people, they were old, they were frail, they weren't in good health, essentially. If you hear of one little thing that goes against, oh, it's 100% safe, no need to worry, then you get people who start to, you know, go down the rabbit hole of, oh my God, microchips, like obviously not that far immediately, but it lends yeah. itself that way. But if you say 99 point whatever percent effective, these are things that have happened. The risk is incredibly low for it to affect you in any long-term way. That to me is a lot more reassuring than just saying, you don't have to ask any questions because there's nothing to worry about. And then you hear of one little thing. It's like, well, what else could they be hiding? You know? Yeah, and it's actually interesting because 
I think you would agree with me on this. This kind of happens in other places where there's some kind of uh, either wrongdoing or like actual conspiracy to like cover something up or whatever, whether it's government, institutions, corporations or whatnot. And the media or that institution will not admit it. And then people are like, I know this was a thing that's been reporting on it from these journalists, whatnot, but they won't admit it. So it leads people down this rabbit hole of, okay, if they're lying about this, they could be lying about all this other stuff. And that's how you get these QAnon, Pizzagate, like, because there are things that happen in the world of that kind. And if, when you deny all of it, you kind of throw fuel on the fire for these people that just get on these rabbit holes. Um, but the next way we wanted to touch on, we're not going to touch on it too much because we're actually working on a video that will probably be out next weekend, getting really in detail because we want to cross all our T's and dot our I's. Um, but to do with what happened at the Capitol on January 6th and what's happened since then. Uh, so we are following that. We, I don't want to talk about it too much, but there's just a lot of, um, it's kind of a both sides thing with this is, narrative in the left media and this narrative in the right media that are hitting on certain things, but they're different things and they're leaving out the other side. So people are only kind of being fed part of the story, which we think is kind of representative of the mainstream media in general, the past number of years. Um, and we think it'd be really good to have um, a video laying out both sides of the arguments and like all this data that is coming out that kind of being uh, filtered by certain media organizations. Yeah, and then the next thing, so I am probably going to pronounce his name wrong. Um, Sergei Navalny, who is the essentially the opposition to Putin in Russia. So a few months ago, he was poisoned, like his food was poisoned and he thankfully lived um but i think yesterday maybe the day before he arrived back in moscow and was immediately arrested and was i think just convicted this morning of something um and now he's set to be in jail for i, th I believe 30 days uh yeah, yeah so this is from the new york times a judge has ordered the Russian opposition leader, oh, Alexei, sorry, not Sergei, Alexei Navalny to be jailed for 30 days pending a trial after a rushed court hearing inside a police station. Yeah. Um, so, you know, sketchy business going on with that. Yeah, which is, this is kind of characteristic of Russia and Putin's regime of, uh, and I mean, it's not only Russia, it's a bunch of other countries the U.S. included in some aspects, but suppressing political dissidents and the opposition and the journalists covering those oppositions. Um, but this is a very recent development. It's in the past day or so. Um, yeah. My final thing I want to bring up is related to the Flint, Michigan, the water crisis. So the governor at the time, Rick Snyder, um, has just been charged along with other people in his team. And I'm going to read a bit from an NPR article about it. Um, so it's him and eight former state officials uh, and one current official. Uh, together, they face 42 counts related to the drinking water catastrophe roughly seven years ago. The crimes range from perjury to misconduct in office to involuntary manslaughter. Uh, 
The drinking water debacle is linked to at least 12 deaths and at least 80 people sickened with Legionnaire's disease after untreated water from the Flint River caused lead to leach from old pipes, poisoning the majority black city's water system. And some news agencies, including PBS, estimated that it could have been a few hundred people instead of the 12 deaths that have been reported. Uh, but the governor himself, who left office two years ago, he's a Republican, he's facing two counts of willful neglect, both misdemeanors, which carry a maximum sentence of one year in prison and a fine up to $1,000. So basically this stems around an investigation of, I'm pretty sure it was like millions of pages of documents and records, how in 2014, there were calls with the governor and people on his team talking about the the water breakout before admitting it to the public. So he said he first knew about it in, I think, January of 2016. But there's records going back to October of 2014. Um, yeah, October 2014, that they knew that this was going on and they essentially um, covered it up, which is why he's being faced, why he's facing two counts of willful neglect. Um, I just want to run through some of the other charges just to get a perspective on this. So the former director of communications and former chief of staff of Governor Rick Snyder is facing one count of perjury, which is up to a 15 year felony. Um, former transportation manager and senior advisor of Governor Snyder facing one count of perjury, 15 year felony, a count of official misconduct in office, a five year felony, a $10,000 fine, one count of obstruction of justice, a five-year felony and or $10,000 fine. One count of extortion, a 20-year felony and a $10,000 fine. Um, some of the other people include the former director of the city of Flint Department of Public Works, the emergency manager, the Department of Health and Human Services for Michigan, with all these various charges, which, I mean, it's it's been a long time coming in this that it's kind of shocking that the governor is only facing up to two years or $2,000 for poisoning hundreds of people. And something that I think is interesting to know, because I wasn't aware at the time, but Obama actually went there during the crisis and basically played cover for the governor and the people there. He actually, in the press conference, and he, he literally said, I'm not one for stunts, but can I have a glass of water? Like drinking water from the pipes that were being lead poisoned. And he did it again in another press conference a couple of days later. And people who were there said, I mean, as I would have been, they were like, I was completely offended. He came in as my president. When he left, he was no longer my president because he basically minimalized I mean, the damage that was done to these people. Yeah. And if you look at the video, it's like, he takes the glass and he goes, yeah, <laughs> like, and I don't know, just the fact of, especially at the time, like a lot of people were looking favorably towards Obama and for him to do something like that, that's so representative of just like the establishment politicians not actually caring about citizens of the country and just doing something that ridiculous. Um, yeah, and I think something I also wasn't aware of until I looked into it more, but there were actually, well, first of all, Flint's water crisis problem is still not solved. They're still drinking out of bottled water mainly because there's still the lead from the pipes. But it's also interesting to know that Flint, Michigan isn't the only city in the country with this problem. There are dozens, if not hundreds of cities that have 
a similar kind of problem where the pipes are leaking something into the water supply. I mean, most places you don't drink your tap water because it's not really that clean. You filter it in some kind of Brita filter or in your refrigerator or whatever. Um, but it's because they cut corners putting the pipes in the first place and use materials that ended up doing the stuff. And they just don't have the money to fix this stuff, even though the federal government can give them that money if they spent a little less money on, you know, the $740 billion military budget that was passed and whatnot. Um, but yeah, so that sums up our current events for this week, for this episode. Uh, so that concludes this first section. Um, the next section, so for this episode, we're talking about the church committee, which was a committee in the Senate in the 19, it started in January of 1975 to look into abuses by the CAA, the NSA, the FBI, and the IRS, and some presidents, um, particularly regarding domestic surveillance against American citizens, um, some assassination plots against foreign leaders, uh, a bunch of crazy stuff that a lot of people, I find a lot of people are still not aware about today. Um, so we'll get into that in this next section. Hope you look forward to it. In this section of this episode, uh, we're going to outline what led up to the church committee, uh, its basic findings, um, before getting into the next section where we'll go through some specific examples of things that happened and show some video clips from the hearings. So in 1970, so first of all, the church committee was founded it started in January of 1975. But in 1970, there was a whistleblower who was a former Army intelligence officer who basically alleged, um, right here. he alleged that there was a nationwide Army domestic intelligence program that was basically spying on American citizens. Um, and then in 1971, a group called the Citizens Committee to investigate the FBI broke into a warehouse uh, storing FBI documents. They recovered a, over a thousand documents, um, which this is where the co-intel program was discovered, counterintelligence program, which we'll definitely get into a lot more detail later. Um, but it also included FBI domestic surveillance and a specific example of Jean Seberg, who was a female actress in Hollywood at the time who supported the Black Panther Party. And the FBI actually, um, they discovered this in these documents they stole, that they put out a whole campaign to discredit her for supporting the Black Panther Party. They shared rumors that her child was the child of a Black Panther Party leader. Um, she later had a miscarriage of that child and eventually later committed suicide, which was attributed to basically the FBI's campaign to smear her image, um, combined with the losing her child that she was reminded of every year from what the FBI had done about it. Um, then in 1971 through 1974, the Watergate scandal happened, which kind of opened the eyes of Americans and congressmen representatives that the CIA, the, sorry, the CIA, the FBI and the IRS could be used for political purposes, purposes by the executive branch, specifically the president, which is what Nixon did. And this led to a rush of democratic people getting into Congress or getting elected to Congress that called them, the term is Watergate babies, that basically they ran on a commitment to investigate abuses by the executive branch and the government in general. 
and like all this stuff like led up to the church community being started. But then in 1974, Seymour Hirsch, a great journalist, he put an article out alleging CAA domestic surveillance program, which goes against the CIA's charter because they're only supposed to do surveillance and gather intelligence on foreign um, actors and states. But this program, which was called Chaos, was similar to the FBI's co-intel program, which was to uh, infiltrate movements, political movements in the U.S., uh, spy on American citizens, and all that stuff. And then the Rockefeller Commission was started by Gerald Ford in 1975, which was to investigate CIA, CIA activities within the United States. Um, it was in response to a New York Times article about illegal CIA activities that included mail opening, surveillance of dissident groups, um, which is, and this led to the disclosure of MK Ultra, which we won't talk about too much on this episode because um, it's kind of a special case, but it was basically the CIA experimenting on American citizens, including people in the CIA themselves with LSD to create some kind of Manchurian candidate mind control uh, program, which it went on for a while and it was, it's still denied that it ever existed, but documents showing that it existed um, are out there. So, but the uh, agency, I think to this day still doesn't admit that it happened, uh, but they would do things such as like set up, um, uh, what's the proper term? Uh, like prostitution houses where the guys that would go in would get LSD slipped into their drinks and they would basically just see what these people would do. They had this, uh, like the two-way glass or the one-way glass screen that literally FBI, CIA agents would be on the other side observing what happened. And they did like insane doses in some cases, like 10, 100 times the amount that a recreational user will take. Um, but this all led to uh, the Congress. So the Senate had the church committee, the House had the Pike committee, but they eventually investigated the same thing. And the actual um, name of the committee, um, let's see if I can find it. Uh, I don't have it off the top of my head, but it was called the church committee because Frank Church was the democratic chairman of the committee. Um, he himself, he was a senator for about 18 years. He was a former World War II intelligence officer. So he kind of had a background in intelligence and he had been on the foreign relations committee uh, for a number of years before all this. Um, and basically, so like I said before, it was started in 1975. They reviewed thousands of documents from all these agencies. And the final report consisted of about 50,000 pages. Um, and I'm gonna outline the basic structure of the report. So they had seven separate volumes and then six separate books um, all covering specific topics. So there was an interim report about, it was titled Alleged Assassination Plots Involving Foreign Leaders. It discussed the CAA plots to assassinate foreign leaders. And it, the plots it specifically discusses were the leader of the Congo, Fidel Castro, the leader of Cuba at the time. There were multiple assassination plots by the CAA, leader of the Dominican Republic, Vietnam, and Chile, um, which was basically it outlined um, the, the basically the committee was unable to state with any certainty whether any plots were authorized by U.S. presidents or not. So it's kind of the idea of the overreach of the CIA, um, which famously Kennedy put a stop, or vetoed basically a plan to assassinate Castro and then fired the director of the CIA at the time. 
um, which was this whole thing. The volume one had to do with the unauthorized storage of toxic agents, which this was only discovered, which you'll see in a video clip later, because President Nixon at the time put out an order to basically destroy any kind of biological warfare material. And at the time, the director, William Colby, put out um, a request for people to like look into this stuff. And only because of that request was this even discovered. It was just like hidden in this unknown storage room, which again, we'll get into videos of it later. Um, volume two had to do with the Houston plan, which was a plan that basically an advisor to Nixon wanted to find a better way to deal with bombings and sniper incidents of police officers and federal officers being assassinated. And he basically went to the intelligence community and said, what would help you track these kinds of crimes down before they happen? And he pushed that plan to the president um, saying what the intelligence community had asked for. And it, the committee discovered basically that a lot of this stuff was already happening, that the intelligence agencies were already doing, even though it was illegal. And the president, President Nixon himself didn't know that they were doing these things, um, which was an important revelation in this, that the president and oftentimes did not know what these intelligence agencies were doing. And in some cases, the director of the intelligence agencies themselves didn't know what these smaller departments of the agencies were doing. Um, yeah, and just to jump in real quick, there was this book, um, I actually listened to the audiobook a few months ago called Surprise, Kill, Banish by Annie Jacobson. And she basically talks about a lot of these covert CIA operations, mostly like um, assassinating foreign leaders and like these regime change wars and the CIA's involvement in those. But in the book, she talks a lot about um, plausible deniability, which is sort of sometimes it's intentional um, where the person who is able to plausibly deny things is aware of information being withheld so that they can plausibly deny it. But like he was saying, the, the, the directors and the president sometimes weren't aware of things. A lot of the times this is done intentionally so that if word got out about, oh, the government's doing these illegal things, then the president of the United States, who, if they were to be um, compromised in that way and basically be caught knowing that these kinds of things are going on, like that's really bad for the country as a whole. So they would orchestrate it so that the president wasn't aware of everything. And if they were aware of certain things, they would use certain language so that it was kind of ambiguous, like um, preemptive neutralization was the mm -hmm. term used to refer to assassinations, um, just like stuff like that. Yeah, and it's concerning because the intelligence agencies are, like the people in them are not elected. Um, they're not really accountable except, like now we have the, um, we have a permanent committee to oversight, to oversee the executive branch, which is a product of the church committee hearings and all this stuff. Um, but the fact that the president, who is directly elected by the people um, and is accountable to the people, doesn't have knowledge of a bunch of programs doing all this crazy stuff. Um, but going on, so volume three had to do with the Internal Revenue Service, particularly abuses by uh, the Nixon administration to pass data to the FBI to aid its targeting of domestic dissonance. Um, it included 8,000 individuals and 3,000 organizations on this list, which included the American Civil Liberties Union, the NAACP, um, 
National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the National Urban League, the American Library Association, the Ford Foundation, and even the Head Start program, um, which again was a concern that the IRS could be used for political purposes by whatever president was in charge um, to attack dissidents, basically. Um, volume four had to do with mail opening, which was illegal. It was started by the CAA in 1952. It basically just opening American citizens' mail against the law. Um, uh, I'm going to skip a couple of these because we won't go into them too much, but volume six, which is one of the largest volumes, it's about a thousand pages, actually it's exactly a thousand pages. It deals with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, um, talks a lot about the FBI's COINTO pro operation, which was a counterintelligence campaign directed at domestic dissidents during the period of civil rights and anti-war discontent. I mean, which, for uh, it's a disclaimer, the people at the time, J. Edgar Hoover was in charge of the FBI at the time, and um, Eisenhower, LBJ, they all were concerned that left-wing movements in the U.S., especially the anti-war movements, the civil rights, the dissident movements, were being infiltrated by um, communists from the Soviet Union, essentially, and were trying to bring the downfall of America, essentially, which to some extent, I think is a valid concern. But as you'll see when we get into this stuff, they just had a blatant disregard for the rights of American citizens in numerous occasions, um, which is crazy to think about. Uh, the volume seven has to do with COVID action. Um, the committee decided that the public right to know of these operations exceeded the possible harm to national security that might result, um, which they kept names of agents secret. Uh, but the hearings only involved one area of COVID action, which I'm assuming the rest of it was kept secret in secret sessions and testimonies. Uh, but it was the United States government, United States government's attempt to rid Chile of its dem democratically elected socialist leadership, um, which has been the case in a lot of situations where, even though it's democratically elected leader, they're socialist or a far left candidate, which the U.S. sees as a threat, so they do things to rid them of their office, essentially. Um, and so the other sections are separate books, which are smaller than the volumes. They deal with foreign and military intelligence. Um, again, the COINTEL pro program, which was the FBI's counterintelligence program on American citizens, and the CAA's Operation Chaos, which was their equivalent. Um, and it included other agencies, including the NSA and Army Intelligence, which what they did was illegal electronics of yeah, sorry illegal electronic surveillance mail opening infiltration of dissident groups black bag breaking jobs which is essentially the CAA FBI committing crimes to get evidence which you can't really use in the court a lot but they still did media manipulation IRS targeting and the intense campaign against Martin Luther King Jr. which we're definitely going to touch on because um, as you notice this episode is being released on Martin Luther King Jr. Day because uh, he is actually targeted a lot by the FBI, which a lot of this was uncovered by the church committee. Um, yeah, the, the other books are basically like supplementary materials on this stuff. And they um, look into actually the JFK assassination, um, particularly the performance of the CAA and FBI in the investigation of the assassination of President Kennedy it analyzes the general question of whether and by what degree the CAA and FBI withheld relevant information from the Warren Commission, which was charged with investigating 
President Kennedy's murder. Among the information unknown to the Warren Commission, except Commissioner Alan Dulles, which was just one member, were the CIA's plots to kill Fidel Castro, which JFK put, um, he put an end to it. And Alan Dulles was actually the CIA director at the time um, that Kennedy fired, which was later on the committee investigating the assassination, which people have drawn concern about. Um, but we won't get into that in this episode because that's a whole um, mess of things that you could spend a lot of time on. But that was just a basic outline of what's in the report. Um, the next section we're going to go, we're going to play videos of the hearings in particular, um, mostly from C-SPAN, which didn't actually exist at the time. But these hearings were shown on public television, which shows you how important they thought they were, because this was before you had C-SPAN, which was like a channel devoted to this specific thing. So it was just cable news channels that would air these hearings. Um, but yeah, so this next section, we're going to go into specific cases. So in this section, we're going to be playing some video clips and kind of explaining context and discussing the implications of these various clips and the discoveries that were made. Um, so we'll kind of keep going back and forth. So this first clip, if I share my screen real quick, this is Senator Frank Church, the chairman of the committee, talking about in reference to the Rockefeller Commission's findings and what the church committee hopes to accomplish. Well, it may very well be that the Rockefeller report is just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, we welcome it, and uh, we will give serious consideration to the recommendations uh, made by the uh, Rockefeller Commission. Uh, but the uh, report is uh, limited, and uh, our work must uh, probe much deeper into the subject. Senator, the uh, Rockefeller report didn't seem to go into any abuses that hadn't already been uh, uh, hinted at in the newspapers. Have you found any evidence of things that uh, are still unknown by the general public, things that haven't been in the press? Well, I think that if I were to answer that question, I would begin to um, cross the line that the committee has properly drawn. Uh, we are only at the first uh, stage of our investigation. We hope to thoroughly examine the assassination issue and uh, then to decide on the method of disclosure and put that aspect of the investigation behind us. After that, we will, we will look much more thoroughly into um, other phases of the investigation. And it's simply uh, premature for me to respond to your question at this time. Yeah, so he was just outlining um, what the rock, well, not outlining, but they were asking questions about that was very early on when the committee was first uh, created, and they were just the media was trying to get a read on what they would gonna find out um, and what they would disclose. Because the Rockefeller Commission, like I mentioned in the intro, it talked about MKUltra, it talked about um, CIA activities um, domestically, which goes against their charter and is illegal. And various of these programs were revealed in. Like I mentioned, the Citizens Committee to investigate the FBI and all that stuff that was released to the media, um, which in reference to a, a last episode about manufacturing consent and the media, we talked about how one of the most important roles of journalism is to like 
help whistleblowers and that type of um, stories get out, like the Pentagon Papers, all, like if the media didn't make the decision to go and publish these documents, we might not even know that these have existed and we might never have had the church committee hearings and put a stop to all this stuff that had been going on for years and decades. Um, the second video I'm gonna play, this is a KKK member who was an informant for the FBI and he's talking about how basically the FBI didn't intervene um, when the KKK was working with the um, Birmingham Police Department to attack the Freedom Riders, which were a civil rights uh, protest movement. So if I'll open this up. Right. In connection with the Freedom Riders incident that you mentioned, uh, did you inform the FBI about planned violence prior to that incident? Sir, I gave them uh, FBI information pertaining to the Freedom Riders assault approximately three weeks before it occurred. And what did you tell them? I stated to them that I had been contacted by a Birmingham City detective who in turn wanted me to meet with a uh, high-ranking officer of the Birmingham Police Department to set a reception for the Freedom Riders. You mean the Birmingham policeman set up the beating of the Freedom Riders and you told the FBI that? That's correct, sir. And then were they beaten? They were beaten very badly, yes. And did the Birmingham police give you the time that they promised to give you to perform the beating? Yes, sir. We were promised uh, 15 minutes with absolutely no intervention from any police officer whatsoever. Uh, the information was passed on to the Bureau. They, we had our 15 minutes. Approximately 15 minutes after the Freedom Riders uh, were attacked, uh, a police officer ran over to me and stated, God damn it, God damn it, get out of here, get them out of here. Your 15 minutes are up, we're sending the crew in. So Fritz Schwartz watched. Yeah, and this was a C-SPAN did a look back on the church committee hearings. And this is actually um, the guy asking the questions. Frank Schwartz was the one of the lead counsel's uh, lawyers. Um, and this was an interview talking about, um, to give context and, and stuff. Uh, yeah, that, that was to show that basically the FBI knew that this beating was going to happen and that it was being orchestrated by the Birmingham Police Department three weeks before it had happened and they didn't do anything about it. Um, which I think people for a while have known certain connections between, uh, especially in that time period, police departments fighting back against um, civil rights movements and leaders. Uh, the next one, this video, this is probably, I think, one of the better cases of showing the clear outreach, because a lot of what would happen was, so like in these programs, they would have to file reports on the information they had gathered and um, conclusions. And a lot of the times the reports were, because these programs were to basically investigate to see if they were, these groups were getting any kind of um, foreign support from insurgent groups wanting to take down the U.S. And most of these reports say we found nothing, no information of this kind, no political violence or anything, but we'll continue to surveil and report. So this video has to do with surveillance of women's groups. And I think you'll find, as I did, um, <laughs> the kind of level of concern on this kind of surveillance. In the area of women's liberation, report after report, about meetings of women 
who got together to talk about their problems. Now, how the Bureau got this information is not entirely clear, but it's apparently by informants. So we have informants running all over the country, checking up about what housewives are talking about in their efforts to decide whether women should have a different role in the society. Uh, reports on particular women who said why they had come to the meeting and how she felt depressed, sexually or otherwise. Reports on such important matters as the release of white mice by women at a um, protest demonstration. Uh, reports on such other important matters as the women's liberation movement is in, interested in zapping the Miss America pageant at Atlantic City by protesting uh, the standards and, and uh, well, whatever they protest in Atlantic City. And my favorite example uh, in the Baltimore women's liberation movement in a document which was sent not only to the FBI, this one's at tab 5.4, not only to the FBI, but to three military agencies for some reason, uh, a document in which there's a long discussion of the origins, aims, and purposes of the group, its location, its pamphlets, and in concluding on the purposes of the group, comes up with such important findings as they wanted a purpose, and that was to free women from the humdrum existence of being only a wife and mother. They wanted equal opportunities that men have in work in society, and so forth. Nothing to do with violence, nothing to do with these labels of subversion and extremism. And what's the conclusion on the document? Quotes, we'll continue to follow and report the activities of the women's liberation movement. Yeah, so one of the big things about, M uh, sorry, not MKUltra, uh, COINTELPO, which stands for Counterintelligence Program, and CIA's Operation Chaos, it mainly focused on left-wing groups, defined as the new left, which incorporated the women's liberation movement, uh, civil rights groups, anti-war groups, and generally like what would be considered progressives today. Um, but th that's an interesting case of, like I said, they would investigate these groups, find nothing, and then continue to surveil these groups, which is concerning because they're American citizens. And, and this went farther than just surveilling. There were situations where FBI agents would infiltrate these groups, accuse honest members of the groups of being police or FBI informants that would then, like in situations with like the Black Panthers, whether on a gun, they would then get attacked by members of their own group because they were being accused of being narcs, even though they weren't. And they were being accused of this by FBI, CAA, who were the actual infiltrators and they there was a case with Fred Hampton who was one of the leaders of the Black Panther Party who was assassinated in a hotel room he was shot and killed by a local police department at the request of the FBI for the crime of organizing the Rainbow Coalition which was a group of rival black gangs to put aside their differences and work together instead of fighting and killing each other and because of that he was killed by the FBI by the order of the FBI um, which even though this was a while ago and I'm sure that the same exact stuff isn't happening, it is concerning that, because basically these group, these, these factions, these agencies has existed in pretty much absolute secrecy to where like Coento brother was founded by Hoover, the CIA directors who had uh, taken office after him didn't know that this program existed. 
the only reason that they knew that they existed was because the documents that were stolen and released by the Citizens Committee to investigate the FBI that broke into a warehouse, which most of those people had kept their name secret until a book was written, I think a couple years ago, um, talking about how it was planned and the people that were involved in it. Um, but it was just concerning that these groups, part of the executive branch, were able to exhibit this much power with virtually no oversight, oftentimes none by the director of the CIA themselves and the president not having knowledge of these things. Uh, now this next clip I'm gonna play, it's a little longer than the other clips and there's two sections I wanna play, but this is questioning of William Colby who was the CIA director at the time of the church committee hearings who didn't know about a lot of the stuff that was going on and he was um, pretty good at working with the committee to discover this stuff. So we'll play that now. In the United States. Subject today concerns CIA's involvement in the development of bacteriological warfare materials with the Army's biological laboratory at Fort Detrick. CIA's retention of, a num of an amount of shellfish toxin and CIA's use and investigation of various chemicals and drugs. The relationship between the CIA and the Army Biological Laboratory at Fort Detrick as an activity requiring further investigation surfaced in late April of this year. It resulted from information provided by a CIA officer not directly associated with the project in response to my repeated directives that all past activities which might now be considered questionable be brought to the attention of agency management. So I'm going to pause real quick. He's basically saying that the only reason they knew about this was because he put out a directive to people in the agency to find cases of this kind of thing. So essentially, if he hadn't given that directive and the, this committee wasn't looking into this stuff, the, it might not have ever been disclosed, which tells you a lot of this other stuff might not have ever been disclosed, um, but I'll continue. Information provided by him and by two other officers aware of the project indicated that the project at Fort Detrick involved the development of bacteriological warfare agents, some lethal, and associated delivery systems suitable for clandestine use. A search was made for any records or other information available on the project. This search produced information about the basic agreement between the Army and the CIA relating to the project and some limited records covering its activities from its beginning in 1952 to its termination in 1970. In the course of the investigation, CIA's laboratory storage facilities were searched, and about 11 grams, a little less than half an ounce, of shellfish toxin and 8 milligrams of cobra venom were discovered in a little-used, vaulted storeroom in an agency building. A major early requirement of the agency was to find a replacement for the standard cyanide L-pill issued to agents in hazardous situations during World War II. That was essentially um, agents that were undercover would take these cyanide pills. So if they got caught, uh, they could essentially commit suicide to avoid giving away information. So what he's saying is that this shellfish toxin was originally developed with the purpose of replacing the cyanide pill because it wasn't a good way to go. It kind of, you convulsed and you, it wasn't painless, but this toxin was a lot more deadly and it basically paralyzed your nervous system and killed you almost instantly. So that was the original purpose for developing this. But as you'll see, as he says, um, it quickly became not about that. This was the basis on which eventually we discovered the to shellfish toxin. 
The only application of this toxin was in the U-2 flight over the USSR in May 1960, during which Gary Powers carried such a device concealed in a silver dollar. In the Powers case, the grooves of the, of the, the, the drill were filled with shellfish toxin. He obviously did not use it and was not instructed to do so. It was offered to him to provide him with an option. The Powers flight was the only time we are aware that the toxin was provided for operational use, although the L-pill was made available for earlier flights. The primary agency interest was in the development of dissemination devices to be used with standard chemicals off the cell, shell. Various de dissemination devices, such as a fountain pen dart launcher and an engine head bolt designed to release when heat appeared to be peculiarly suited for, agent, for clandestine use. Available records do not indicate that all specific items were developed exclusively for the CIA, as work on similar devices was also done for the Army. At the time the toxin was found, the officer responsible for the project in 1970 stated that he had no recollection as to how it got there. On the 30th of June, discussions were held with a retired agency officer who had provided the initial lead. This man, who had been the GS-15 branch chief in 1970, stated that the toxin had in fact been moved from Fort Detrick and stored in the laboratory. This was done on the basis of his own decision after conversations with the responsible project officer. He further stated that he made this decision based on the fact that the cost and difficulty of isolating the shellfish toxin were so great that it simply made no sense to destroy it, particularly when there would be no future source of such toxin. The current branch chief believes this explanation is correct, but still does not recall the actual act of receiving the material from Fort Detrick. Both of these middle grade officers agree that no, no one, including their immediate superior, was told of the retention of the shellfish toxin. If that amount of shellfish toxin were administered orally, which is one of the least efficient ways for administering it in terms of its lethality, that quantity was sufficient to kill at least uh, 14,000 people. If it were administered uh, with the sophisticated uh, equipment that was found in the laboratory, that quantity would be sufficient to kill a great many more. Estimates vary upwards into the hundreds of thousands. Now, my first question is why did the agency prepare a shellfish toxin for which there is no practical antidote, which attacks the nervous system and brings on death very quickly. Why did the agency prepare toxins of this character in quantities sufficient to kill many thousands of people. What was the need for that in the first place, long before the presidential order came down to destroy this material? I think... Yeah, if you were just listening, that was Frank Church, um, the chairman of the committee, and what he was referring to at the end was an order by President Nixon to destroy all these kinds of materials, which at the time, they were not aware that this specific um, toxin existed. 
And I'm going to skip ahead a little bit in the video because um, they actually, it's kind of interesting. They bring out one of the dark gun devices that would have been used for clandestine purposes, which if you're unaware, it's um, like undercover spies, essentially uh, for assassinations, which they'll talk about. This quantity um, and the various devices for administering the toxins that were found in the laboratory certainly make it clear that purely defensive uses were not um, what the agency uh, had, had uh, was limited to in any way. There were definite offensive uses. In fact, there were dart guns. You mentioned suicide. Well, I, I, I don't think a, a suicide is usually accomplished with a dart, uh, particularly a gun that can, can uh, place the dart in a human target in such a way that he doesn't even know that he's been hit. There's no question about it. It was also for offensive reasons. No question. Have you brought with you um, some of those devices which would have enabled the CIA to use this poison for? We have indeed. For killing people? <laughs> don't, don't point it at me. <laughs> I wonder if. if now, does does this does this pistol uh, fire the dart? Yes, it does, Mr. Chairman. The uh, that the round thing at the top is obviously the sight. The rest of it is uh, what is practically a uh, a normal 45, although it's a, it's special. It, however, it, it works by electricity. There's a battery in the handle, and it fires a small dart. So that when it fires, it fires silently? Almost silently, yes. Uh, very little. Very what little. range does it have? 100 meters. 100 meters, I believe, about. About 100 yards, 100 meters. About 100 meters range. Right. And the dart itself, when it strikes the, the, the uh, target, um, does the uh, target know that he's, about, that he's been hit and about to die? That depends, Mr. Chairman, on the particular dart used. There are different kinds of these flechettes uh, that were used in, in uh, various weapon systems, and a special one was developed which potentially would be able to uh, enter the target without perception. Without perception. Right. And did you find such such darts in the library uh, in, in the laboratory we did isn't it true too that um, the the effort not only involves designing a gun that could strike a, a human target without knowledge of the person who'd been struck but also the toxin itself would not appear in the autopsy? Well, there, there was an attempt to... Or the to dart? Make, yes. So that uh, there was no, no way of perceiving that the, uh, the target was hit. 
As a murder instrument, that's about as efficient as you can get, isn't it? It, it, it is a weapon, a very serious weapon. This record seems to disclose an additional concession, namely uh, the lack of accountability, so that we not only have a secret agency, but we have an agency which, about which there's some question as to its accountability to the authority of the president or to the authority of the National Security Council. Uh, the record seems to disclose uh, that there is no presidential or Security Council order in the first place directing the uh, CIA to establish this program at all. Secondly, there appears to be no report by the CIA to higher authority of the existence of these toxins or biological weapons. <laughs> Thirdly, there seems to be no evidence that those in charge of the CIA inquired of subordinates as to the existence of toxins or biological weapons or that following the presidential order decreeing the destruction of such toxins, that any formal order went forth within the CIA to require their destruction. Moreover, the record seems to uh, support the notion that it was only by chance that the leadership of the CIA became aware some years later of even the existence of these uh, lethal toxins which were in violation of a direct presidential order. In short, uh, the record's a mess, and we may never know just exactly what happened. No one has. So something that comes to mind for me when I hear about stuff like this is just, this was 60 plus years ago? Yeah, so a lot of the stuff started in the 50s, but the majority of what they were specifically um, investigating happened in the 60s and early 70s. Yeah, so thinking of, like specifically what, what that video was just talking about, of all of these, these things that they were working on back then, just thinking about what capabilities they must have nowadays in terms of surveillance, but also in terms of, you know, clandestine ways of eliminating targets just like all of that kind of stuff just knowing that this existed and there's evidence of it existing that long ago it's just it we have no idea what they what they're yeah. capable of nowadays and to think that at that time they had this weapon that would be able to because essentially it was essentially developed for assassinations and taking out targets which would it's like some of the, like William Colby was saying that some of the darts, the target would not have been able to feel the dart entering their system or hitting their body. And that that toxin would not come up in an autopsy report as the cause of death, which is kind of spooky, especially like what you were saying to kind of extrapolate that to today and the kind of technology we must have today that we don't know about, not uh, alleging any kind of conspiracy, but just that it was clear that a lot of these um, programs were going on without proper oversight, um, when without the knowledge of people that should have had the knowledge of these programs. Um, if you don't have anything else to add on that, we can go to the next clip. Um, so this one is kind of short, but it's related to our last episode about 
Um, the uh, media manufacturing consent and how um, they, I made a reference to Operation Mockingbird, which was CIA's operation to infiltrate um, media organizations and news organizations, which this clip is um, them asking Colby about this specifically. And this is part of a documentary that came out called, um, what is it? The CIA on company business. And this is in the third part. Um, so I'll play this. I thought that it was a matter of uh, real concern that planted stories intended to serve a national purpose abroad um, came home and were circulated here and believed here because uh, this would mean that the CIA could manipulate the news in the United States by channeling it through some foreign country. Now we're looking at that very carefully. Do you have any people? So just to be clear, if you're listening on the audio, this that was just Frank Church talking, and this now is a senator asking William Colby questions. Being paid by the CIA who are contributing to a major circulation American journal. We do have people who submit pieces to other to American journals. Do you have any people paid by the CIA who are working for television networks? This, I think, gets into the kind of uh, getting into the details, Mr. Chairman, that I'd like to get into an executive session. So if you're unaware, executive session is essentially secret sessions that are not public. Um, it deals with, uh, um, what's the term? Uh, Sensitive information? Yeah, that you need a, a security clearance to know about and discuss, which this situation happens a lot where like a similar phrase to use is when an agency is asked about something and they say, we will not neither confirm nor deny that this program exists or this was done. Um, essentially, you can as, uh, interpret that to mean, yes, we did it, but we don't want to admit it. So we're going to not admit it. Um, which like you were saying, uh, the plausible deniability is kind of ties into that whole idea. Um, but I'll keep playing the clip. Uh, at CBS, uh... Uh, so again, if you're listening on the audio, this is the president of CBS News, Sig Mickelson. He was president from 1954 to 1961. He's commenting on this. We uh, had been contacted by the CIA. As a matter of fact, by the time I became the head of the whole news and public affairs operation in 1954, uh, certain relationships had been established and I was told about them and asked if I'd carry on with them. We have quite a lot of detailed information Thank you, again. Uh, and we will evaluate it, and we will include any um, evidence of wrongdoing or any evidence of impropriety in our final report and make recommendations. Do you have any people being paid by the CIA who are contributing to the national news services, AP and UPI. 
Well, again, I think we're getting into the kind of detail, Mr. Chairman, that I'd prefer to handle in executive session. So that's the end of that clip. And this, um, I, I want to make some comments on this related to contemporary things, which we're going get, to get off topic a little bit, but it's, it's definitely relevant. So um, we talked on the last episode about Project Mockingbird, and this is again related to the intelligence community's infiltration of the news media to um, essentially put out propaganda for whatever narrative, which the word propaganda kind of has a negative connotation, which when it was the term was first created, it was just another name for advertising. Like that's what advertising is. It's propaganda to make you think you need this product or that this thing is true or whatnot. Um, but nowadays it was a joke. I forgot who it was by, which is that you only use the word propaganda when it's someone else's, but when it's yours, it's advertising or, or whatnot. Um, but so one of the things that came out of the church committee, other than the permanent committees to uh, do oversight on the intelligence community and the executive branch was the creation of the FISA court, which is the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, um, which came into mainstream media news when the whole Russiagate investigation thing was going on, which so we're gonna probably get into this more in detail in another episode because I don't want to diverge too much, but just because it's relevant to today, the application to surveil the Trump campaign, the FISA application. So it's been found out now after the fact, and some uh, someone was actually prosecuted for lying in this application, saying that the specific thing was there was it was a not Christopher Steele, um, Peter Strzok was a CAA asset or informant that in the, the FISA application, someone edited the words to say not in informant, which is illegal because it's, it wasn't an accurate statement. And it was also found that there, there was 17 errors in this FISA application, which approved the surveillance of the Trump campaign, which again, it's, it's a lot to get into to like kind of lay this out, but basically, um, my the, the analogy I want to make here is that back in this time, it was an unknown, like they, they had planted, the intelligence community had planted people in the news media to push these stories, write these stories. And like I mentioned Gene Seberg earlier in the episode, like they were implanted secretly to do these things. But now it's not so secret because after the whole Russia accusations came out, you had these, um, I forget what the term is, but they're like um, guests on CNN, uh, MSNBC, all these places that used to work for the intelligence community. And they bring them on, they pay them to come on and talk about this stuff, which essentially they're spreading propaganda and being paid to do it on national television and whatnot, even though they had to have known that um, there were these errors with the FISA application and that these connections that were being drawn were not accurate. And this kind of goes into, um, like, again, I don't personally agree with Trump, and I think he's done some things wrong, but it shows that the executive branch has this overwhelming power to use, to still to this day, to use these agencies to their own political benefit. Um, I don't know if you have a comment on that, Eric, or not. Okay, well, then I'll continue with more clips. So this next clip, 
so this guy, um, this deals with the Houston plan, which was essentially, he was an advisor to President Nixon, and he wanted to um, get tools available to the uh, intelligence agencies to basically stop bombings and assassinations of police officers, snipings, and all this stuff. So he went to the intelligence community and said, what tools would help you solve these things? And they asked for things such as mail opening, the black bag things, which is them committing crimes to get evidence. And he submitted that report to the president to be approved. Um, and basically what the committee discovered was that the FBI, CIA, they were already doing these things, even though they were asking for permission to do these things. And they were doing these things without the knowledge of the president. Um, so I'm gonna play that clip now. When you testified, uh, earlier uh, in the executive session, uh, you were asked uh, the following uh, question. You were not aware of the fact, I take it, that at this time, the time you were submitting your recommendations to the president, uh, the CIA was was opening a mail. Mr. Houston, you replied, no. In fact, I think one of the more interesting things in this whole thing is why I didn't know half the things I didn't know when the President of the United States sat across the table from the directors of the intelligence agencies and said, I want a complete report on what's going on. <clears throat> I didn't know about the CIA mail opening. I didn't know about the COINTEL program. These people were conducting all of these things on their own that the President of the United States didn't know about. Do you still stand by that testimony? With the exception that I assume, I guess I can't be positive the President didn't know if he learned from other sources, but I can say that I certainly didn't know about it and it was my responsibility to see that the president knew what was going on. And to your knowledge, he did not know. To my knowledge, he did not no. know. And yeah, so that was just to show that, like they said, the President Nixon at the time was not aware that these things were going on, even though the intelligence community was recommending that he make it legal for them to do these things, which is, again, shocking because, I mean, if I was alive, I probably wouldn't have agreed with Nixon's policies, but I would have agreed with the fact that the chief executive should have knowledge of these kinds of programs. So at least uh, they can be somewhat held accountable. But now, like I said, you have like the assumption of the committee um, after the church committee hearings to keep permanent oversight of these. And this last clip I wanna play because it's a good summation of uh, what's going on here. But, uh... After the fact, you found out that many of the agencies that were on that interagency task force were using tools that uh, they were sitting there discussing White House approval for obtaining. Uh, why do you think they were, they were going through this charade? <laughs> I wish I knew. I don't know. I think that... Uh, so, again, if you're just listening on the audio, this is Tom Charles Houston was a former associate counsel and staff assistant to President Nixon from 1969 to 71, who proposed this so-called Houston plan um, to President Nixon. 
I think part of the problem was that if the other agencies knew they were doing it, there would have been all sorts of problems because, for example, the FBI greatly resented President Johnson ordering the military intelligence into the domestic collection area in 1967 because that was their charter. But the President directly ordered it and they had to live with it, although they certainly were anxious and happy that the Urban Committee hearings blew that out of the water and got those people out of the business. I think, for example, the FBI and Mr. Hoover would have had an absolute stroke if he'd have known that the CIA had an Operation Chaos opera going on. Uh, so I think that the last thing in the world the CIA would have done was to disclose to the Bureau that they were working on their turf. I think so. I think interagency jealousies and rivalries had part to do with it. I think the second thing is that if you've got a program going and you're perfectly happy with its results, why take the risk that it might be turned off if the President of the United States decides he doesn't want you to do it? Because they had no way of knowing in advance what decision the President might make. So why should the CIA run the risk that the president may say, hell no, I don't want you guys opening any mail. Then if they'd admitted it, they'd have had to close the thing down. The COINTEL program, apparently even the Justice Department didn't know about that. If they'd have told me, it was obvious that, uh, had, you know, that the word would have been out. So it seems to me that many of these agencies just kind of operated in their own world and, and had their own programs going. Uh, they didn't yeah, and just a quick comment here. Frank Church made a, a comment in one of these press conferences about how even though these actions shocked the committee in some aspects, they admitted that it wasn't just on the intelligence agencies, like it wasn't just their fault. It was the fault of, I think his exact words, just paraphrasing was like, numerous presidents, attorneys generals, and congresses failed in their duties to oversee these uh, agencies, essentially, which I think is definitely true which is why they established this oversight. Yeah. And another thing referencing uh, the Annie Jacobson book that I mentioned earlier, in it, she kind of talked about how after World War II, um, the United States and Britain started, you know, meddling in um, CIA type organizations. Um, I'm trying to remember what it was called back then, but essentially it went through they started just like kind of gathering information and then over the years they became more and more more involved like they they expanded they had more departments they had more people come in and they began doing more of these secret type things where you know people in the CIA were were planning and discussing potential assassination attempts in foreign countries that was in one like sub department of a sub department or something like that. And like, only they knew about it and everyone above them, no one, none of those people knew anything about it. No one in other branches knew about it. And just like all of this stuff happening, like he mentioned, like they're kind of all just working in their own worlds. And through this book, like she, she talks to a lot of people who are directly involved and you can, you can very much see this, how, you know, like talking about the assassination of Castro, like a handful of people knew the plans for that um just like that that type of stuff it's and again thinking back to today it's like we i think in my opinion in your opinion you would say the same is that we should have another church committee type thing because how many of these things are, are going on behind the scenes that are just completely unregulated there's no oversight at all and we just have no idea that they're happening yeah and there's a lot of 
strange, I guess I could say, occurrences that have been going on, which just a quick side note is just an example is when Epstein was first charged in Florida and let go by, um, I think his first name, Acosta, who later became one of Trump's cabinet members, when he was asked why he let Epstein off on this plea deal, he said, I was told he belonged to intelligence um, and that it was above his pay grade and that he just needed to listen to higher ups. Which again is concerning that, I mean, maybe it's not true, but maybe it is true. It's concerning that someone that did the things that Jeffrey Epstein did may have been tied to intelligence and doing things on their bidding. Um, but I'm gonna go back to this video because he ends talking about, um, again, how he thinks this stuff happened. And he, he has this idea, he talks about like executive expansion of powers, which I think is it's a really important idea to be thinking about. So let me play. I want anyone else to know it. And the thing that intrigues me is that I always was under the illusion that the purpose of intelligence was to provide policymakers with information upon which to make policies. But if the policymaker doesn't even know that those sources of information are available, I don't know what in the world good it does anybody. Yeah, sorry, just to pause again. But this is a really good point because what he's saying, and I definitely agree, is the point of gathering intelligence is so that intelligence can be given to the people whose job it is to determine policy and enact policy. Um, and if there were, if there's intelligence being gathered by people who are not, whose job it, whose job it is, yeah, who, basically, they're gathering intelligence, but they're not the ones that are making these policy decisions, and they're not passing this intelligence on to the people making policy decisions. They're basically making decisions on their own with no accountability. So it's again on that whole no accountability thing. Except the people who are operating it for their own gratification. This really brings us back to Senator Mondale's question. How can a president uh, feel that uh, the law is being obeyed and the presidential policy is being adhered to? And uh, doesn't that bring us then full circle back to the Constitution and to uh, the assurance, the extent that we can be sure of any human undertaking, that the Constitution is understood and that loyalty to the Constitution is uh, being given by every public servant. Yes, I think it comes back to a, a, an assumption by all officers of what an agreement among all people in government is exactly what the limits and responsibilities and obligations imposed by the Constitution are. But I think that the problem that we've had, and it's not just in this area, Senator, I think it's in many areas that over the past 30 years you've had an accretion of ex little steps of increased claim of executive power. And pretty soon, after a 30-year period, all of a sudden you woke up one morning and here was this creature that had been created that no one along the line had ever really contemplated. Each of these steps, and I think initially, were innocent, honest steps. I mean, I think most of these, in my belief that these people in the intelligence community were honest people, dedicated people, wanting to do what, an honest job for what they thought was best for the country. And I don't think that they were out to destroy the liberties of the American people for any perverse political purpose. But what happened in my judgment in this area, where I got sucked in, when I should have known better, and where many other more intelligent, sophisticated people got sucked in in other areas, is the whole concept of some uh, inherent executive power that really extends beyond anything contemplated by those who made the incremental claims as we went through the years. 
And I think that position has been reached, and now there's some hard looks at this and some knocks, and perhaps we're even I judge a little bit too much the other way. Uh, but I think that's healthy, and I think that, that we're on the right track. Yeah, which I pretty much agree with him. I don't think everyone involved in this had some malicious intent, that they actually were doing what they thought was in America's best interest. Um, but I, I like the thing you talked about, this incremental increasement of executive power, because we've seen that happen time and time again. I mean, you could talk about it related to the COVID crisis. You could talk about it with the Patriot Act and the authorization of military force after 9-11, how essentially, like I mentioned uh, in some, I forget which episode, but one of our previous episodes, how the United States has not declared war on another country since World War II. And all this stuff has been essentially executive decisions to deploy troops and do all this stuff, which they are the commander in chief, they have the ability to do that. Um, but it's been increasing year after year after year. And it always happens to where one side makes this increase and the other side hates it. But then when the other side gets into power, they use those executive power increases to do things that they want to do. Yeah, and um, this idea of incremental change, I think it applies to so many different types of situations. And just for example, you can look at something that happened last week, which was Trump getting banned from Twitter. About that specifically, there's a conversation to be had there about whether or not they should have done it or whether they shouldn't whether they should or should not have done it. But then from there, it's like, okay, what about these other, these other accounts that are, you know, espousing bogus claims and stuff like that. It's like, okay, there's a conversation to be had there. But then as you keep going, it's like, eventually you get to the point where it's just, maybe this person has views that are disagreeable, I guess you could say. Um, but do they have a right to say it? And then, you know, another step is this person, it's not disagreeable, but I just disagree with it, you know? And then it's just like this incremental, it's like, oh, well, you know, just this, this, this one case, like, yes, we have to do it. And then the next time it's like less severe and it's like, oh, but you know, we have to do it. And then the further you go, you know, the step, the steps feel smaller and smaller. And then when you go back and look, it's like, this is where we started. This is where we are now. You know, it's the same thing that that he was talking about. Yeah, and I'm related to the what's going on, what's been going on since the Capitol um, incident and the social media backlash and the censoring and banning of not just people directly involved, but um, I mean, yeah, this was my point. Like, you have um, this podcast called Red Scare, which is two self-proclaimed left-leaning people liberals i forget exactly but you know they're on the left but they critique the left they critique the excesses of the far left type speaking and they were banned from twitter and again articles of unity which was something brett weinstein was looking at which is talking about bringing center left and center right bringing them together and making that a presidential ticket that was banned from twitter as well and it's like and they they claim that it was a an infringement on the policy or user agreement or whatever. guidelines and all yeah, that. Yeah, but they said they did an internal investigation. There was nothing that they did that was wrong, and yet they're still banned, and there's nothing being done about it. And that's kind of what I'm relating to. It's where, like, they were challenging the establishment. They weren't espousing QAnon conspiracies, but they were treated the same way, and it's... Yeah, even people who had 
been on the ground at the Capitol as journalists recording video, have had videos demonetized and taken down just for talking about what they saw there, which is kind of concerning. Um, but the next couple of video clips I'm going to play are related to the FBI's actions, particularly to do with Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement, which I wanted to bring up because today is MLK Day, and I think it's important for us to realize um, some of the things that went down. So this first clip I'm going to play is probably the worst abuse, which is where they sent a letter to MLK. Um, and so this is a clip of the hearing and then um, Frederick Schwartz commenting after the fact, um, giving some references and context. Now the Bureau went so far as to mail anonymous letters. Oops, sorry, I'm on double speed. Uh, the Bureau went so far as to mail anonymous letters to Dr. King and his wife, which were mailed shortly before he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, and finishes with this suggestion. King, there is only one thing left for you to do. You know what it is. You have just 34 days in which to do it. This exact number has been selected for a specific reason. It has definite practical significance. It was 34 days before the award. You are done. And just for context, um, this letter was in reference to uh, he was having affairs with other women, cheating on his wife, and the FBI was surveilling him. He had wiretap conversations, and they were basically threatening to give this information to his wife along with this letter. Give us some context for what we just saw. Why was the FBI looking into the activities of Martin Luther King? Again, this is Frederick Schwartz, uh, way after the fact, like four years after the fact. Well, Right after I made that statement, Fritz Mondale, who was really the hero of the committee on the FBI side, uh, everybody was a hero, but he was a special one. He asked me a question. If I can interrupt, that was taken by Dr. King to mean a suggestion for suicide, was it not? That's our understanding, Senator. The and the answer was, it was intended, and it was taken as an effort by the King family and the King associates, like uh, Andy Young, to get him to commit suicide. Um, Hoover hated King. Um, J. Edgar Hoover hated King. A, Hoover had a negative view of what were then called Negroes. Uh, Hoover, by the way, was J. Edgar Hoover, director of the FBI that started a lot of these programs. Indeed, on the very afternoon of King's I Have a Dream speech in Washington, D.C., in the bowels of the FBI's office, they resolved to destroy Martin Luther King. And they set out to do that in lots of ways. They persuaded the Kennedy brothers to agree to wiretapping of King and King's close associates. They did that, we later discovered, by exaggerating the role of a advisor to King, his closest white advisor, Stanley Levison who had been a member of the Communist Party, but who left the party and the party turned against him. But 
what the FBI told John Kennedy and Robert Kennedy was that he was a member of the Communist Party and a close advisor of King and they wanted to get the wiretaps. They then obtained, or they didn't have to obtain permission under the rules then, the FBI could put a bug in anybody's house, in anybody's bedroom, and they put bugs in uh, hotel rooms that King was going to use, and they made recordings from that and then sent those to King with the letter. Now, if you had received such a letter, um, how would you have interpreted it? Uh, what would you have thought it meant? I have read that statement. Uh, I have heard the conclusions of your staff that it was a suicide urging. I can't find any basis upon which they drew that conclusion. I think that uh, approaching it from an objective standpoint, as I read it, I don't know what it means. So that was the Deputy Associate Director of the FBI at the time of the hearings. Um, but essentially, it was the, in the document that they had, it, this was found in someone's files as a draft of the letter. And then he was reading what the actual letter was sent. But it was proven that the FBI did indeed send this letter to King um, to encourage him to commit suicide. Um, this other clip is just more um, detail of the kind of tactics that they used. Now, turning to COINTELPRO, Co Frederick Schwartz again here talking. COINTELPRO is a abbreviation of the words counterintelligence program. COINTELPRO is the name for the effort by the Bureau to destroy people and to destroy organizations or as they use the words, disrupt and neutralize. And in pursuit of this goal, FBI agents used a wide range of weapons, disseminating misinformation, creating animosities, and generally spreading havoc among the target groups. One of the other techniques utilized was to destroy the job or family life. And family life was a particularly opportune target in the Bureau's, Bureau's view. So this here is, I think, really important because even though there were document, do, yeah, sorry, even though there was documentation of people of stature being targeted, this shows how normal everyday American citizens doing what they thought was in their, what they thought was best for the country, advocating for left-wing causes, were, they had their lives essentially destroyed by the FBI and these programs. And played on some fairly tender sensitivities. Without mention of the name reflected therein, if you look to tab 9-4 of your books, you will see the Bureau's report on a COINTELPRO effort against a white female who was involved as an officer in what is defined as a local black activist group. The way to discredit or neutralize this leader was to take attention away from activities of the group 
by creating another kind of distraction. The distraction read as follows. Dear Mrs. Blank, Look, man, I guess your old lady doesn't get enough at home, Mr. Blank, I'm sorry, letters to her husband, or she wouldn't be shucking and jiving with our black men in action, you dig? Like all she wants to integrate is the bedroom, and us black sisters ain't gonna take no second best for our men. So lay it on her, man, or get her the hell out of blank. It's signed, A Soul Sister. Yeah, which, again, it's just crazy how for the crime of wanting to get civil rights for African-Americans and ease tensions, um, these people had their personal lives destroyed, um, but continuing. Pursuant to that program, there was a body called the National Mobilization Committee to end the war in Vietnam. At the time of the Democratic National Convention in 1968, the that body attempted to obtain housing in Chicago for demonstrators who would come to the convention. Uh, the FBI local office in Chicago obtained 217 of those forms and filled them out with fictitious names and addresses of persons who purported falsely to have houses in which the demonstrators could say. Uh, the tactic had its designed effect uh, because, according to FBI documents, the persons who went out to look for these houses, made, quotes, long and useless journeys to locate the addresses, and the effort to find housing was canceled. And what effect that had upon the attitude of the persons who were there in Chicago, and what contribution that made to what happened thereafter, I suppose we'll never know. Yeah, and this kind of situation happened multiple times where the FBI would mess with these groups in this way. There was one situation where they tried to procure an airplane pilot to drop flowers in a peace movement, anti-war demonstration. Um, and the FBI filled out this fake application acting as a pilot in communications until they showed up with 200 pounds of flowers and this pilot didn't exist, um, which is just a really strange way to try and protect the country. Um, but this last little bit I want to play is here. Decided that if they were going to take King off his pedestal, it was a part of their task to find and bring into prominence a new, quote, national Negro leader. Uh, after the March on Washington, there was an acceleration. He was defined because of his speech in that demonstration in Washington as the most dangerous and effective leader in the country. And there was a paper battle between within the Bureau as to how best to attack him, and he was attacked. Uh, after Time Magazine named him as Man of the Year, again, the Bureau finds that reprehensible, believes it must attack and destroy. Uh, when he was given the Nobel Prize, again, they seek to discredit Dr. King with the persons who welcomed him back from that award. Uh, when he began to speak out against the Vietnam War, there's a new crescendo of efforts by the Bureau to discredit and destroy Dr. King. When the Poor People's Campaign took place, once again, they go after Dr. King. And their activity to go after Dr. King didn't even cease when he died. Because as Congress began to consider the question of whether or not Dr. King's birthday should be named and made a national holiday, 
Uh, the Bureau developed plans to call in friendly congressmen for off-the-record briefings concerning King in the hopes that those congressmen could keep any such bill from being reported out of committee. The period surrounding the March on Washington and directly following it is particularly revealing. A report was written uh, for the director uh, by his chief intelligence officer reporting that the Communist Party, in fact, for 40 years had been trying to control the Negro movement uh, and that it had always failed. And that its efforts in connection with the March on Washington were infinitesimal. This was not accepted uh, by the director of the FBI. He found that thinking wrong, unacceptable, and said that it must be changed, and it was changed. Uh, and then we find paper coming in in which the lower level people in the FBI apologize for having misunderstood matters, and on they go uh, with this effort to discredit and start, they do, the bugs uh, on Dr. King. The FBI sought to prevent the Pope from meeting with Dr. King. Uh, it intervened with a cardinal. To prevent the Pope? The Pope. From meeting with Dr. King? It did. An effort to stop that from happening. Uh, the Bureau went so far as to mail anonymous letters to Dr. King and his wife, which were mailed shortly before he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, and the next new national Negro leader. Yeah, so we already heard about the letter. But again, it's weird to think that supporting the anti-war movement, putting, doing a poor people's campaign, marching for civil rights, giving a speech that got all those people to go and listen to that speech, African-Americans, white Americans, people of all creeds and colors was deemed by the FBI to be an inherent threat to the state of the nation. Um, just strange that that ever happened. And it's kind of shameful to think that our country put down someone who today, um, very much deservedly so, we appreciate the things that he did and the things that he fought for. Um, but I mean, when I first found out about these, the church committee and all this stuff that it was unveiled, especially COINTELPRO, um, I was just shocked. And then again, like we had referenced multiple times in this episode, it makes you think if this had happened in the past, um, surely there's some level of things going on um, that we don't know about, that our representatives don't know about that's being done by certain agencies. I mean, maybe our representatives do know about it. Um, but it just opens your mind to all these kinds of questions. I don't know if you have anything to add, Eric. Yeah, um, do you have that link I sent you? Uh, let me try and pull it up. Yeah, so one night I found this random, I don't remember how I found it, but it's basically a, a transcript of a speech given by James W. Douglas, Douglas with two S's, um, in 2006, and it was a speech where he essentially talks about kind of this stuff relating to what the intelligence communities did to Dr. King and Malcolm X. 
and he has like some yeah he has sources in there about where he gets his type type of information but some of the stuff he talks about of like i think there was a an assassination attempt on malcolm x before he left the country because he was planning on bringing up a civil rights case or a human rights case to the united nations about america's united states treatment of african americans and you know our country saw this as a threat so similarly what they did with king was sending letters about stuff um they would send letters to him and they tried to basically create tension between him and people around him like his associates by spreading false information and stuff like that and yeah if you get a chance and this type of thing interests you it's it's definitely a very very telling read yeah it's called the converging martyrdom of malcolm and martin uh by james w douglas written in 2006. yeah it's interesting because i didn't play the clip but the other council you um you heard from a couple times other than schwartz he talked about how the fbi saw the prevalence and continued growth of the nonviolent movement as a threat, which again was concerning to think that nonviolent movements can be a threat, and the whole point is to not have violence. Um, but I guess they thought that that would give weight to the arguments of those groups. Um, yeah, I think so. That's actually I have one more clip. Um, to kind of round it out, if you don't have anything else to add before I do, Eric. Um, no. Yeah, so this is Frank Church giving a, a statement about basically the committee's findings in general. Um, and I think he very eloquently states their summary. Again, this is Frank Church, chairman of the committee. The committee does not believe that the acts which it has examined represent the real American character. They do not reflect the ideals which have given the people of this country and of the world hope for a better, fuller, fairer life. We regard the assassination plots as aberrations. This is the assassination plots of foreign leaders that they had discovered. The United States must not adopt the tactics of the enemy. Means are as important as ends. Crisis makes it tempting to ignore the wise restraints that make men free. But each time we do so, each time the means we use are wrong, our inner strength, the strength which makes us free, is lessened. And I think that's a really important point, um, which I definitely agree with. I think a lot of people would agree with that kind of sentiment. Um, and just one final relation to today. So if you remember the Snowden leaks to do with the NSA, it was along the same lines where they were collecting all this meta metadata from consumer cell phones and calls and text conversations. Um, which a lot of people think it was just 
you know, this number called this number and talked for X number of minutes. But what Snowden goes into, especially interviews he did on Joe Rogan's podcast, which I would definitely recommend checking out if you have the time, because they're pretty long. Um, they're over two hours each. He's done two of them. But he talks about how it was definitely more than just this kind of metadata. Like they were able to see people's messages because a lot of these messaging platforms are not encrypted end to end. So the platform that you're using can look at your messages. Um, they, he talked about people looking through emails, um, getting passwords, looking through people's webcams, which is, again, makes you think if this was happening, what, I think it's eight years ago. I forget exactly when it was um, that these leaks happened. But I mean, and even along the similar lines with a lot of the WikiLeaks dumps of documents, it's documents that exist, um, particularly the ones in America that they had gotten leaked to by whistleblowers and whatnot that they then released, which the government didn't want out, which has revealed things like war crimes, the torture program, undercounting of civilian deaths and military conflicts, all this concerning stuff, which again has to do with these agencies and which the term deep state, I think has been corrupted by Donald Trump's use of it because it makes it sound conspiratorial. But the general argument is that you have this group of unelected, unaccountable agencies, particularly the intelligence agencies, um, that are able to do this stuff shrouded in secrecy. Um, and he, President Kennedy actually gave a really good speech about this that I would check out if you have time, talking about secret societies and secret organizations and how we must not let the um, the idea of keeping information top secret information secret and doing this intense secret intelligence operations, we shouldn't let that trample on our freedoms as American citizens as to what makes this country uh, as great as it, as, as it is. Um, so again, I wanted to do this episode because personally for me, this is something that got me interested in finding out about more about government, especially history. And something we'll touch on a lot in this podcast is touching back on history to get lessons for today. Um, yeah, do you have anything else to add at the end here, Eric? Like a closing note? Okay, well, thank you for joining us on this episode, our first video podcast episode, which we're doing, we'll be doing every episode from now on. Um, be on the lookout for next week, we'll be doing a video, extended video on what's been going on with the Capitol and since then. And another side note is, we're going to very soon start having guests on, on episodes um, for discussions on specific topics. So we hope you look forward to that. If you have any suggestions for guests, you want to be a guest yourself, contact us. Uh, you can email us at twintakespodcast at gmail.com. Um, stay safe, be well. Thank you for joining us. Take care, everyone.